0: Nehemiah chapter 4. We're rolling through Nehemiah. You'll remember that last time we were together, we talked about Nehemiah 3, the list of everybody that worked on their section of the wall. We have come to Nehemiah chapter 4. Let me see if this resonates with anybody in the room today. Ridicule, contempt, criticism, hostility. Adversity. Somebody said something bad about you that wasn't true. Somebody questioned your ability to do what you believe God has called you to do. Somebody questioned your ability to succeed in your degree program or to succeed here at Cedarville. Overwhelmed at times, fear, self doubt leads to dejection or perhaps being distraught or even what some might call depression. You're insecure. Do I really have what it takes? Anybody in the room ever felt that way? Today, we look at Nehemiah chapter four and we see all of those things in this text. Often, we look at the Old Testament, we think, how can that apply to me? There may not be a more applicable chapter in the Old Testament than what we're gonna see here in Nehemiah chapter four. I suspect we all have felt this way at one point or another. We're gonna see how Nehemiah responds and handles this today. Our main idea of our text is this. In times of trial or opposition, we must keep pursuing the Lord's will while finding strength in our great and awesome God. Now let me break down for you why I put this as the main idea of our text. In times of trial or opposition, sometimes the Lord allows trials to come into our life to strengthen our faith. Those are good things. It's like lifting weights. If you, if you lift weights with the two-pound dumbbells all the time, you're not gonna build muscle. Sometimes you have to pick up the hard ones. You pick up the 25s, the 30s, the 50s so that your muscles actually get tired. The trials can build endurance and build faith. But sometimes there's just opposition and it's just cruel and ruthless and mean and is coming after us. And so whether it's a trial or whether it's an opposition, we must keep pursuing the Lord's will. And I'll come back to that because that's complicated while finding strength in our great and awesome God. We can't find our strength in ourselves. We will come to the end of ourselves. We have to keep relying on God. We need to surround ourselves in the community of a solid local church so that we have those around us that can bear our burdens. We need to be in the word. We need to be praying. We need to be depending on the spirit. Now here's the hard part about this, is I put in here, keep pursuing the Lord's will. The really difficult part of life is determining when God's closing a door and the circumstances say, no, you can't go here any farther, or when it's opposition that's coming that we need to bust through, climb over, or destroy that's ahead of us. And there's no easy answer, and I don't have the answer for you in the text today, as how you determine whether it's God closing a door or whether it's a trial or whether it's opposition coming against you. These are the hard decisions that make it necessary for you to be in the Word consistently, for you to be praying consistently, for you to have good friends around you consistently speaking into your life that can help you discern, is this God closing the door on me? Is this mean I'm not supposed to go this way? Or is this just the devil trying to put opposition up in front of a really good and godly pursuit? That's the tough thing. So today, and our main idea A key phrase there is pursuing the Lord's will. So I'm not telling you, if you set your mind on anything in the world, this is how you respond to overcome the opposition to it because God may say no. And if God says no, it's time for you to back off and pursue the Lord's will, change direction, shift gears, do whatever the Lord wants you to do. So in times of trial or opposition, we keep pursuing the Lord's will, not our own, but once we're pursuing God's will, we don't let anything stop us. In those times of opposition, we lean on God, our great and awesome God, for strength. So if you will, in honor of the reading of God's Word, stand with me as I read the first few verses of our text here today. Nehemiah chapter four. We're gonna read here beginning in verse one, going through verse six. So now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yeah, what they are building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Hey Lord, today I pray that you would help me to stay tied to the text and be faithful to the text. I pray that you would help us to hear from you, Lord, that your spirit would convict us and challenge us and encourage us as is needed so that we may grow in godliness and our pursuit of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. All right, I have four key words for you today as we walk through this text. We're going to walk through the text and we're going to look at the agitation in verses one through six. Then we're gonna look at the intimidation in verses seven through nine. We're gonna look at dejection in verses 10 through 14, and we're gonna finish with determination in verses 15 through 23. So we start with agitation in verses one through six. It says in our text, when Sanballat heard that they were building a wall, he was angry. The Bible has repetition for a reason. Not only does it say he was angry, it says he was greatly enraged. And then it says, he jeered at the Jews. So we ask the question, why is it that he is so uptight and so angry and so furious over all these things? And it tells us earlier, because someone had come to seek the welfare of the Jews. So here's a point for us, here's an application point for us. You don't have to do anything wrong to have enemies in this life. You don't have to do anything evil for people to look at you and say, I don't want that. He had a selfish ambition and a selfish motive, and somebody came to seek the welfare of the people, and just because they were seeking the welfare of the Jews, it was going to cost him some of his selfish ambition, his selfish motive, and we are living in a world where the worldview wars are hostile and raging, and if we do nothing more than stand for this book, There's gonna be opposition that comes. There will be enemies that come to attack us. And we have to be prepared for this. If you think you're gonna please everybody in the world and everybody's gonna think that you're just a perfect person, then you're not gonna take a stand for the word of God. You're gonna be disappointed when you get out in the world and somebody just doesn't like you for one simple reason. You're a follower of Christ. That doesn't mean we give them reasons not to like us. But if they dislike us just because we're standing for the word, we have to be okay with that. We will never please everyone. They jeered at him. That means to make a rude or marking remarks in a loud voice. What did he say about them? He said, what are these feeble Jews doing? The word feeble means lacking strength, especially if you're old or if you're weak or if you're faint or if you're withered away. And so he's making a comment about perhaps some of the age, some of them don't look like they should be working on a stone wall, which, which they shouldn't. Some of them are perfumers, some of them are goldsmiths, some of them are priests, some of them don't have the muscles to be looking like they're supposed to do this. And he, he's making fun of them. He's saying, are you feeble? He asks questions for them. He asks these questions. He says, will they restore it for themselves? They don't even know how to build a wall. That dude over there, he makes perfume. That dude, he works with gold. That dude over there just sacrifices cheap. They don't know how to build a wall. Are they gonna build this wall? Anybody ever challenged you in that way? Are you gonna do this? You don't know what you're doing. You don't have the ability. You're not smart enough to do this. He questions them. It causes them to doubt themselves. He says, will they sacrifice, or some paraphrase this to say, will they pray the wall up? Are they gonna pray to God and trust that God's gonna make this wall just stand up out of nowhere? Are they gonna pray the wall up? What's he really after here? He's poking at their faith. He's challenging their faith. Are they gonna be able to have this done? Has anybody ever questioned your faith? Will they finish in a day? Oh, they haven't even considered what this is gonna take. They haven't considered how long this is gonna take, how hard it's gonna be. Will they revive this wall with burned stones and heaps of rubbish? There's an important part there, he points out the heaps of rubbish That's gonna come back around later on in our text. He points out the burned stones, but we know from earlier on the text tells us that the gates were burned, the stones were knocked down. Not all of these stones are burned. There's material there that could be used, but what happens is you take a sliver of truth, a sliver of a fact, you, you stretch it out, and then you use it to criticize somebody, and then in our own minds, we start questioning, is that really the case? Is that really true? And then we begin to doubt ourselves. And then along comes Tobiah. Tobiah's like the sidekick. Sanballat's ask all these questions. All of these things have a sliver of truth. All of these things have something in them that's gonna come back around. He's been very intellectual in his argumentation. He has really hit them where it hurts. And then here comes Tobiah, and Tobiah makes this claim. He says, oh yeah. If a little fox comes up on top of their big wall, their whole wall will fall down. Their wall was nine feet deep. A fox weighs from four pounds to a maximum of about 30 pounds for the red fox. That's a really big, fat red fox. (laughs) So take 15 pounds. We'll just take the in-between average there. We'll just say 15 pounds. A 15-pound fox is gonna come up on a wall that's nine feet thick, nine feet deep, and it's gonna break it down. This is absolutely ridiculous. There is no thought or no truth or no anything in this. He's just piling on. He's just added to what's already said. There is absolutely nothing here other than he's just trying to step on somebody while they're down. This is a ridiculous statement. But we all know sometimes the ridiculous statements of life cut to our heart and we listen to them and we dwell on them and they, they just reverberate around in our minds. Shakespeare called ridicule the paper bullets of the brain. Others have called it the language of the devil. We know it, we experience it, we resonate with it because somebody has said something about us at some point in time in our life and we have allowed that to just bounce around in our brains to where it has hurt us, where it has constantly come back up, where it has caused us to have self-doubt. All of those lies that the devil uses to keep you down. You know what, I know that we know what this is like because sometimes we even do it. Sometimes we even do it to one another. Now it should never be that at a Christian university, an authentic Christian community, that we jab at one another in such a way to have a harmful intent to poke somebody down. But sometimes in our own sinful nature, what we like to do is push other people down so that it pushes us up. And when we're really feeling bad about ourselves, if we can cut somebody else down enough, we can squash them down, then it makes us feel like we're okay. So we actually get a high, we actually get a sense of belonging, a sense of being by pushing other people down. And let me tell you, remember the prayer that's going to come right after this, Lord, turn it back on their own heads. The Bible says what you sow is what you will reap. And if you're a person that is constantly being a Tobiah and a sandballot and you're knocking other people down, then when it comes back around on you and the Lord gives you a taste of your own medicine, don't go complaining to everybody else that this is not right and this is not just. We have to be careful because we are so quick to point out others' inconsistencies and others' problems, but we don't look in the mirror to look at ourselves. Sometimes we do it and it's just for fun. Sometimes it goes too far. Social media. You pick your poison. We see it, we see it in some of the memes that come out from our own work. Some of them are funny and that's okay. Some of them, they're not funny. It's a dagger, and it's not meant to be funny. And when you do that, or when I do that, it's not okay. So can I just caution you? And you can tell by the silence in the room, this one's a hard one. Can I just say to you, let's be careful, because we don't know how those paper bullets are going to bounce around in somebody else's brain. We don't know how it's gonna reverberate to a roommate, to a suite mate, to somebody on campus. Can we make sure we're not the sandballots and the Tobias of the world tearing everybody else down instead of building everybody else up? That's the authentic Christian community we need to have. That's the authentic Christian community we should be. Be known for what we're for, not known for what we're against. Let's see how the text progresses here. Verse four. He responds to all this criticism. How does he respond? He creates a social media war to go back after them. I see your meme, I raise you too. No, he doesn't. That's, that's what I would wanna do. In my own head, in my inner conversation, because I'm, I'm old enough not to say this out loud, I, I would, I, perhaps I would even type out an email to go send about this, or a tweet, or a Facebook post. And then right before I hit send, delete. What we have here is we have a prayer. What does he say? He says, hear, O our God. So what's a good response to criticism, whether it's got a sliver of truth or whether it has no truth whatsoever? Go to the Lord in prayer. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads. Now, we don't even like the way he prays sometimes, because this would be like an imprecatory Psalms where we hear this and we're like, oh, wait a second, but we're supposed to pray for our enemies and love our enemies. But we understand here's some, this is some transparency here. He wasn't happy about praying for the enemies, and these enemies were actually going against the direct work of God, and we know that. So he's praying, God, turn it back on their head. He's being honest and real with God, and let me say to you, God can handle your doubts. God can handle your fears. God can handle your anger. and your. You're never gonna deceive God and make God think everything's okay when he knows it's not. So if you're angry, express it to God. If you're fearful, express it to God. Our first impulse should be that we turn to the Lord in prayer. That should be constantly what we're trying to do. Hear, oh God, for we are despised. Turn it back on their own heads. Lord, give them to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Lord, don't cover their guilt. That's a harsh one. Not, Lord, save them. Lord, they're against you. They despise you. Lord, don't cover their guilt and don't let their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So what happened? He prayed and what else did they do? They kept working. Verse six, so we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. If that were it, we'd be okay. That, that's the agitation, They used words, the words didn't work, they kept working, they kept building, so what comes next? What comes next is the intimidation. The intimidation starts in verse seven. But when Sanballat and Tobiah, oh look, the list grows, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashtodites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed, those breaches being closed. It's like an open wound that you lay some gauze or something over and you begin to close up the breach so it begins to heal. So get that visual in your mind, this wall, those breaches, those open wounds in that wall began to be closed up as though there's a bandage that's been laid across there and the wall has been built to about half its height. And at this point, they're just mad, they're just furious. And so it says in verse eight, they plotted to come together and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. So what's the response then? There's an intimidation that takes place. And note this, the intimidation is from all sides. Sanbalat and the Samaritans are from the north. Geshem and the Arabs coming up from the south. Tobiah and the Ammonites coming from the east, Ashdod from the west, formerly a Philistine city, and where was Susa, where was the help? It was 1,100 miles, five and a half months away, depending on how you traveled. There was no help coming. Here's Nehemiah, and he has people on all sides surrounding him, and they're threatening violence, and they're trying to cause confusion, and here he is in the middle of this trying to do the Lord's work. How does he respond, what does he do? In verse nine, it says, and we prayed. He didn't do it alone. He did it together. All of them. Early on in Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah's prayers. We see his longer prayers. We see him fasting and praying for four months before he approaches the king. We see his quick prayers. Lord, give me favor in the presence of this man. We see him praying when people are agitating him with words. And now we see him praying when they're coming against him with opposition. And it says, we prayed to our God But he didn't just pray, he prayed and he worked. We prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So intimidation, it didn't work. But look at verse 10 through 14 and we're gonna see the dejection. External pressure sometimes magnifies internal weaknesses. And here in verse 10, look at what happens in Judah. So we've got the external oppression. Now we're looking at the internal problems. We're looking at the dejection that sometimes comes. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. Remember the question? Are these people going to build that wall? This is not what they do. Oh, our strength is failing. There's too much rubble. Oh, you you, you got to catch this. Was there more rubble now at the halfway point than there was when they started and had no wall at all? I I can't imagine there was more rubble. I would have to think that when they started the project, there was a lot more rubble on the ground and they cleared some of it off and they gathered the yew stones and they put them back up on a wall that's nine feet wide. And as they put all this up, that rubble began to disappear. But all of a sudden, because somebody had come along with words, they had taken their focus off of the God that they served and off of the vision and the task that lie ahead. And they had begun to place their eyes on what was around them. And all of a sudden they noticed all this rubble that was less than it was when they first started. And here, all of a sudden, they begin to say, there's too much trouble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build the wall. This is what happens when the criticism creeps into our mind and we allow it to stay. Even if it's not valid, we begin to question ourselves. Is this true? Are we really gonna be able to do this? In verse 11, it says, and our enemy said, they will not know or see it come until we are among them and we kill them and we stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived nearby came from all directions and they said to us 10 times. That phrase 10 times, probably an idiom, just meaning they repeated it over and over again. And they said to them, you must return to us. What's happening here in the text? They're coming in from the outside. Remember some of those people that worked in chapter 3, lived remotely, and they came in. They were working on a section of the wall. Now the people that were out there are coming in. It says they came in over and over again, and they said, you've got to return to us. They have made the claim that they're going to attack you. They could attack you on the way to the wall, on the way home from the wall. They might attack us. You've got to come home. It's not safe. You're risking your life. These stones are not worth it. Come home to us now. Can you imagine the pressure that this put on the people that were building the wall? A wife a son, a daughter talking to a dead, saying to a dead, dead, you've gotta come home now. You need to protect us. We need to be safe. You can't travel back and forth. It's not safe. You're gonna be killed. You're gonna be destroyed over what's happening. You have got to come home. And that husband or that father trying to say, I need to do what needs to be done. We must restore the walls. Not because they're walls, but because the Lord needs glory in Jerusalem and this is his city and it's an utter disaster. This is because the Lord is worthy and I have to do it. Imagine the stress. Imagine the sleepless nights and those sleepless nights that add to the weight and the exhaustion and the fear and the depression. So here we see utter dejection. You must return to us. So what happens? How does Nehemiah as a leader respond to what takes place here? In verse 13 it tells us, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, I stationed people by their clans. So he took their families and he stationed them in those lowest, most visible parts with swords and spears and bows. Swords for up close, hand-to-hand combat, spears for a little bit longer range. The bows, the commentary said they could shoot these bows 400 yards with accuracy. I don't know if that's true, 400 yards is a long shot. I can make about 65 yards with my compound bow. That's about it. Maybe they, they were just that good. I don't know, but at least they could reach out there and touch somebody, right? It, it wasn't close combat. They had bows. They were equipped and he put them where they would be visible. So now probably the threats to come and kill didn't mean a direct frontal assault. The enemy probably wouldn't want to bring an army and do a direct assault because then Persia would hear about it and Persia would send an army and even if it took them a long time to get there, they would completely wipe them out. Probably what they were doing is trying to create confusion, trying to create fear and maybe what they were after is some guerrilla type warfare where we're gonna hide ourselves and we're gonna attack a single person or a single area and then we're gonna run away and we're gonna deny it. Now, I don't know but if I were in those shoes, that's what I would be thinking. They're coming after the areas. So he stations them where they can be seen. We're prepared, we're ready for it. And then in verse 14, it says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to all the people, do not be afraid of them. So back to our main idea. If you are pursuing the Lord's will for your life, do not be afraid of them. If you are confident what you are doing is what God has called you to do, do not allow the criticism, do not allow the opposition, do not allow the hard times to derail you. Do not be afraid of them. And look at what it says. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Nehemiah was smart, he put them by their clans, he knew he needed to remind them we're not fighting for a bunch of stones in a wall, that's not what this is ultimately about, remember the Lord, your great and awesome Lord, and then fight for your brothers and your sisters and your sons and your daughters, all of those around you. And I wanna say to you as the church of Jesus Christ, remember the Lord and we live in a culture that needs us to be a light shining bright and needs us to go forth with a great vision of remembering our great and awesome God and standing alongside our brothers and our sisters and our sons and our daughters and proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news to a world that may not even wanna hear it because our God is worthy. That's our calling. That's our purpose. Don't let it get you dejected. Remember them and fight for them. Have you ever thought about how many times the words do not fear are in Scripture? Over and over and over and over. The Scripture says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. The Lord is with us. Remember your Lord who is great and awesome Resisting external or internal opposition requires us to lean into God. So who's your first phone call? Something bad happens. Who's your first phone call? Is your first phone call home to mom or dad? It's not a bad place to call. Is your first phone call to a friend, is your first phone call to come talk to an RD or faculty member or to come see one of us? Those are not bad things, but let me challenge you to say that your first phone call, your first words out of your mouth need to be that you have developed such a close relationship with God that your first thought is that I am leaning on the God that is the awesome and great and powerful God. You can contact mom and dad, you can contact us, we're all here to help you. I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm saying to you, your first contact should be to go and pray about what's happening in life. Something challenging, some trial occurs. I want your first impulse to be go to God in prayer. Talk to God about it. Allow God to reassure you. Far too often we get struck down in anxiety or depression or dejection because we're just looking around at the world and just a few moments to take our minds off of what's here and to refocus our minds up on him and what he's done and praying with God and there's a peace that will come over you where God will say, "I've got this. I'm in control." I'm I'm not scared by things coming from the north, east, south, and west. All of those kingdoms are gonna go away one day at the power of our awesome and great God. So will you develop a habit of leaning into God first? Our God hears our prayers. Our God is available. Our God is all-powerful. Our God is all-knowing. Our God cares for us. Our God is holy. Our God will win the day. Our God is unfailing. And even in a time when we are unfaithful, he is the faithful God. Lean into him in a generation of doubt and depression and anxiety where everybody's looking at the culture, nobody knows how to answer all of this, lean into God. Because we have the answer of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have what the culture wants, they just don't know they want it yet. In a winsome, loving, caring way, let's focus their attention on the great and awesome God and off all of the things of this world. There's a story that's told about Martin Luther. I don't know if it's true, but it was in a book and I have a footnote, so I'm telling it to you. The story told about Martin Luther is that he had been struggling for weeks with discouragement or dejection. So one day his wife walks into the room with a completely black dress on, dressed in all black. So Martin Luther looks up, looks at his wife, says, who died? She responded back to him, God did. Now we saying Martin Luther's mighty fortress is our God. So enraged, he stands up. God did not die. To which she responded, quit acting like it then. I don't know if that's true, but it's a good story. (laughs) So how do we respond? Look at verses 15 through 23 in determination. In determination here, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, he didn't take credit for this, He put a guard up, he did it by families, he was wise, but he gives the credit to God. God had frustrated their plans. We all returned to the work, each to his work. From that day forward, half of the servants worked on construction, half held the spears, the shields, the bows, the coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. They all jumped in and did it together. And if we're gonna make a difference in our culture, if we're gonna make a difference in our nation, if we're gonna make a difference in the Midwest or the world, we better all decide we're gonna do this together. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that they labored with the work in one hand and held his weapon in the other hand. The builders who needed to use both hands had a sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet, or the shofar, the ram's horn, he was beside me. Notice the leadership principle here of Nehemiah. In the time where the battle was going to happen, he said, I want to be at the very middle of the battle. I want to be at the front lines of the battle. He said, I'm placing the guy with the trumpet right beside me. And then he said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widespread. We're separated far from one another. So here's our plan. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. You can't lead people if you don't identify with them, if you're not one of them, if you're not part of them. If you're gonna bell out at the first sign of hard times and trouble, then nobody's gonna follow you. If you wanna be an influencer, if you wanna be a leader of people, identify with the people that you're called to serve and minister to. Rally to us there and our God will fight for us. Nehemiah was right there with them. Nehemiah led them. But you wanna notice some things here, it takes hard work. He said they worked from dawn until the stars came out. If you wanna do anything great for God, you can't be lazy. It's gonna take hard work. So go ahead and get in your mind right now, if I wanna do anything in this life worthwhile, I'm gonna to have to work hard. We've seen that with Nehemiah. The king asked for the plan and when he asked for the plan, Nehemiah had the plan and he told him how, what he needed, how long he was gonna be gone. That didn't just happen. He didn't shoot off the cuff, he had a plan, he had worked hard, he had gathered the data, he had it all there, he was seeking to serve, he was working diligently and we should work diligently, we get this life. And this life shouldn't be all about us and all about fun and all about rest and all about retirement, this life should be doing all I can possibly do for the kingdom of God until I'm dead, until I go to be with Jesus. So let's, let's tell ourselves, let's covet to one another that we will work hard. I don't, I don't mean in a way this poor stewardship to where you're a workaholic and you neglect everything. I just mean in good stewardship. We're gonna work hard. They worked in this season from dawn until the stars came out. And they stayed at their work during the night. During the night, they stayed there. It would prevent people from knocking down the wall that they had built. It would prevent them from doing other things. So for that season, they sacrificed. They all stayed right there. And they stayed ready. In verse 23, it says, they didn't take their clothes off. It says they kept their weapons at their right hand ready for surprise. Look at what it says there. Verse 21, they labored at the work. Half of them with the spears from the break of dawn to the stars came out. Verse 22, I said to all the people, let everybody pass the night within Jerusalem so they may guard us by night and labor by day. Verse 23, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They were ready. There's so many different leadership principles here. Let me just say to you, if you know you're pursuing God's will for your life, wrestle with God on that, be firm in your commitment, but once you know that you're pursuing God's will for your life, then when the trials come, when the opposition comes, you keep pursuing God's will and remember our great and awesome God. Here's our main idea, in times of trial or opposition, we must. Keep pursuing the Lord's will while finding strength in our great and awesome God. It's my prayer that you will do something amazing for the kingdom of God, not for your own glory, but for His. Dear God, we are weak and feeble. We are prone to accept criticism. We are prone to be distracted. And so, Lord, help us today to remember to lean into you, into your word, into prayer, into times alone with just you. Lord, may we pursue your will above our own. And Lord, when we have a tendency to wanna be critical, may your spirit be quick to correct us and say, no, don't go down that road. Lord, may we hold forth you as the great and awesome God. May we work hard and be diligent in our service to you. And Lord, may we resist all external oppositions to accomplishing your will on this earth for your glory, for your namesake. And that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen, and you are dismissed.